Hi, I'm Samuel. And I'm Bentley. And this is the Review Podcast. Podcast. So I've been trying to get Samuel to watch a movie from the canon, as it was handed to me, uh, for more than a year now. Uh, I remember coming out of college and I had the list of the movies in the canon that I had not seen and I was, you know, spending several years going through them and I really enjoyed them. Uh, Some of my college classmates were still living in the area and I had an extra semester to complete. So I would go up to their place on the weekends and we'd do like double features. You know, we would, we were consciously trying to evaluate these movies that had been handed to us because in the late 80s, you know, finally was the full flowering of this whole on-demand video culture, where if you had a machine, you know, by and large, you could find the VHS tape to watch the movies. So somewhere in there, I watched The Cane Mutiny, right? I love Humphrey Bogart. Uh, it's a war picture. Uh, it's it's uh, examining the question of authority and justice. Loved it. So 20 years go by, and then we hit the current political climate. I absolutely bring politics into my view of art. Uh, and so I was like, you know what? I need to show my sons the Cain Mutiny because it raises the question of when do you disobey authority, right? When do you resist and how do you resist? Plus, the Cain Mutiny has Humphrey Bogart. So I bought it on Blu-ray. I I spent actual money on Amazon to get the Blu-ray and I've had it in my hip pocket for more than a year now. We've gone through this very traumatic political season, right, 2015, 2016, now we have a president that many people in the country are very concerned about, there's been resistance, each day seems to bring headlines that are really anxiety-inducing, and, and all of this stuff is up for debate. Okay, that's cool, that's, so let's use art to frame that up. I finally got Samuel to sit down and watch the Kane Mutiny with me. It sucks. Hey, <laughs> What? It's it's actually really, really plodding and boring. And I don't say that as a young person watching a film from the 1950s. There are plenty of films that I can watch from that era and before and see the merit in and enjoy and re-watch. The pacing of this film is unlike any th- other piece of art I've ever seen and how poorly it is managed. Like, well. It doesn't. It feels like like one of those weird hipster films that has no traditional three act structure. Like <laughs> it's it's its pacing is off. It muddies its own message right at the end. We'll get to that. But I, I it it's not doing anything for me. It's not a person. It's I'm not passing it on as canon to my kids. I'm not using it to to mm. frame the debate of anything that I see out there in the real world. Because I think it's just a fist fight, a slog to get through. Yeah. Okay, and well, so let's do the setup of the plot. So it starts off in a pretty standard way, right? Here's this clean-cut young guy. He comes out of uh, the academy, uh, and it's like 1944, right? So the war's yeah. been going for a little while. He gets assigned to a minesweeper, uh, which is interesting right off the bat because he's apparently this great, politically connected young man. You know, he's, he was really proficient in the school, high grades, uh, and yet he's put on this just garbage duty, and he's put in front of a battered captain who's very lax. You know, the, the crew is just sort of schlumping around because they're on the back end of the war, right? They're not on the front lines. They're just sort of uh, flopping around in the Pacific. Uh, so you get through some of that, and you can see there's, there's the conflict. Here's this clean-cut young man who's got stars in his eyes. He wants to serve his country. It's World War II. 
and he's put on the back end with a bunch of guys who don't seem to care, right? So right away, he's like, mm, this is not the way things should run. And then they pull that old captain off of the minesweeper, and they put Humphrey Bogart in. And he immediately starts to talk to his officer corps, of which this young man is one, about, you know, well, we're going we're gonna to go by the book, right? I've been in the military since way before the war started. You know, I'm a Navy man, and if it's in the Navy uh, regulations, we're going to follow it. And he starts worrying about things like, are the shirts tucked in? <laughs> Except that then he gets called back to San Francisco to answer for a, a mistake that's made on the ship. And the crew gets shore leave, and the idealistic young man goes to Yosemite. And I don't remember that. It's like a 20-minute sojourn, like, out of the end what of the... What the heck was that? Dude, the first act, like, the first the act and second act are broken up by almost a 20-minute intermission, which almost feels like the end of the film. Like, it's such, like, oh, he's back together with his love, and they're making plans to get married, and they're up in Yosemite, and... You know, the bad captain is on trial, and it's like, oh... And there's fire coming off of the mountain. What is that? Like, it's so dumb, and I just... <laughs> like, I'm just sitting there like, what is happening? Why is it paced this way? All right, so what's happening is it's a movie made in the middle 50s, and so there had to be a love story, right? They're it's trying to turn the young actor, whose name is Robert Francis into the next teen heartthrob. Correct. And the way you get that is with a nice, mushy romantic story with Mae Wynn, who's the young woman. And it just has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. You could cut all 30 minutes of all of their scenes together. It has nothing to do. We try to avoid cliche where we can here on the (laughs) Review Podcast, but it sucks the air out of the picture. It does. it, It does. And it can't recover from that because you want rising building tension in a story like this it's claustrophobic you're on a ship you're dealing with basically who they point blank call someone who's paranoid yeah you're dealing with distrust who do you trust with this information you're dealing with uh the unseen enemy i do like the movie never like really shows them in combat with the japanese now there's a beach landing where there's some artillery fire happening around them yeah but but you never see the enemy so that's why military movies are good for everyone to watch, right? I know that we on the review podcast, we are both straight white males. Bring that viewpoint to this. There are many other viewpoints in the culture. We listen to those and respect those. This is just our point of view. Yep. And we happen to like war movies because I think it's fair to ask you know, Americans to watch certain war movies in the canon because it is a way to describe a microcosm of the culture. Right, the the best war pictures say, well, here's this unit, here's this army unit, or here's this. You know, you love aliens for that very reason. It's I a, love aliens, man. It's a microcosm of society, and how do you function? How do you get together and work when there's stress? And so that's really what this movie should be. Except it's it's like three movies. It's the wartime, a claustrophobic on the ship. How do we deal with a leader who is? A Bad Leader, that's one movie. There's the romantic movie, which isn't very good and has nothing to do with anything else. And then it turns into a courtroom drama. That's a third movie. This is three movies in one. And we usually love panache. We usually love genre mix-up like that. But there's not really a lot of warning or transition between no, these. And it's, it's club-footed. It's really bad. And, and a lot of it isn't even, yeah, filmed that interestingly. And like if you read through the IMDb trivia page, like after Humphrey Bogart gives this really big 
speech in the courtroom, apparently the whole crew stood up and gave him a standing ovation. I'm like, there's nothing there. No, there's was, nothing there. Well, it was really obvious, right? So the reason why this is uh, in the canon and why we're doing it now, uh, obviously I had those aspirations that it would be a, a, a way to talk about politics in 2016, 2017, but you know, it is known for certain things. Right, him playing with those two little steel balls as a symbol of his anxiety and paranoia—that's an image that's in the culture. Except that, as I watch this movie again, it's so poorly done. Like it's so obvious. There's no art to it. There's no subtlety. It's just—they just do it so poorly. Right? It's like hitting you over the head with a sledgehammer. And the other thing that gets talked about, and I even saw this in political debates online in 2016, was you know the pivotal problem that he blows from a mountain into a molehill is about the theft of strawberries that they're having on their ice cream, right? You'll hear that metaphor. I saw it among other Gen Xers online as we were talking about, you know, the mental state of some of the candidates. So, you know, it has contributed to the culture, but you know what? I have, I guess I agree with you. I don't think I would ever make somebody watch this movie again. It has contributed to the culture, but you can contribute to the culture without being part of the canon or without well, being passed on. Well, that's true. So as I'm watching this again with you, I'm thinking, you know, these issues of leadership and when do you resist, this movie is not as good as your typical episode of the original run of Star Trek. Oh, right? my God. Star, Star Trek did this stuff better 10 years later. Yes, much better. I mean, there's, there's, and to be fair, you made the point while we were watching that you don't get to Star Trek without this stuff. Yes, right. And that's true, but the Flash Gordon serials that make Star Wars possible are also not in the canon because they don't have the boiling point. They don't have the special yeah. sauce yet. You right. always talk about the boiling right. point. This isn't at a boil. Well, it's at this point, not... if I had to choose between showing somebody uh, Crimson Tide, right, which is about a mutiny on a sub, Led by the, the captain is Gene Hackman, and the mutiny is led by Denzel Washington, right? Very famous 90s movie. If I had to choose between showing that as a Navy mutiny versus Kane mutiny, I'd show people Crimson Tide. It's yeah. a better movie. Yeah. It's got Denzel, man. Because <laughs> it's got Denzel, and he talks about comic books because Smith comes in as a script doctor. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Kevin Smith comes Kevin in as a Smith script doctor. Kevin Smith doctors the script, and he, so he makes Denzel settle a debate between the crew members about some comic book thing. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, Brian... Okay, so brief segue. We might have to cut this out later, but Brian K. Vaughn did the same thing when he wrote, like, three episodes for Lost. Oh, he put comic book stuff in Lost? Yeah, he put comic book stuff in Lost. Two of the characters are having a debate about who's faster, Superman or the Flash. <laughs> well, that's the classic one. That's almost a cliche. Yeah, now, but so. but anyway. he apparently has them settle it or whatever. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, sure. All right, so, so so this is really interesting to me. So it's con- the Kane mutiny has contributed a couple of important things to the culture. I agree with you that just because it contributes doesn't mean it stays in the canon. I think this comes out of the canon. I would not show the Kane mutiny no. to anybody else again. But it's amazing how that decision actually gets reflected when it gets released. The pedigree of this movie is really high. It's based on a Pulitzer Prize winning novel by Herman Wolk. It's got Humphrey Bogart in the lead. Uh, you know, it was a successful play in between the novel and the movie. So mm-hmm. they make the movie. And it's got all these stars in it. I love Van Johnson. He plays the everyman character who eventually gets put on trial for court-martial. It's got Fred McMurray in a very interesting, complicated role. 
and it's up for seven Oscars, but it doesn't win a single one. So somebody must have figured it out early on, like, you know what? There's some justice out there in the world. <laughs> like, they, they understood that this, and it made a lot of money. This actually was a box office success when it came out. But you know what? I now feel about it the way I feel about The African Queen. Uh, I went back and watched The African Queen a couple years ago. Also with Humphrey Bogart. I love Humphrey Bogart. I love Catherine Hepburn. That movie is terrible. I will never watch The African Queen again because it's way too uh, Disney-fied. I came away from it feeling like it was a very simplistic Disney kind of story Mm. that was not half as complicated as people think it is. So that's another one where I mean, we can do a whole podcast on the African Queen as something that I have reevaluated recently, and I'm just like, ugh, it does not deserve its reputation. Yeah, I mean, I hate to keep nitpicking at K-Mutiny, because you, but you're covering all the big reasons why it doesn't work, all the big concepts, and I'm sitting back, and I'm trying to give this thing my respect and my attention, and Lord knows I love the Godzilla movies and all the stuff in there. But, like, even just the model work in this, with the, like, little boat as they're in the typhoon, <laughs> is awful. It was filmed in some dude's bathtub. Like, well, I didn't just... mind that because, you know, I understand the technology of the time. But you know what? You made a great point as we were watching it. So, you know, that scene of the typhoon and what happens, that's when they take over the ship from Humphrey because he's oh, crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the typhoon, you see the typhoon knock down the smokestack and the radar array. Yeah, it's right? taking out pieces of the boat and... Meanwhile, Nobody ever mentions it again, right? Yeah. That's not a part of the of the court martial. Nobody says, "Well, I can prove he was crazy because we lost our smokestack and he didn't care and we were going to die." Yeah, so nobody talks about yeah, that. Yeah, we always talk about the details here on the review <laughs> podcast. That should be a pretty big thing that comes up. But I, the thing I thought you were going to mention is when I pointed out that from the outside, this boat—I mean, it is getting wrecked, like waves crashing all over yeah, it. It's going really, sideways. Yeah, it's yeah. just. Oh my god! And then they cut back to inside on the bridge, and no one is moving. They're all standing perfectly vertically right. upright. Right. And, is, like, no one, they're not even pretending to feel any of the impacts of these waves that are right. supposedly happening. So, you, you, immediately you lose your suspension of disbelief. Yeah. And that's another example of how an average episode of the original run of Star Trek is better than this movie, yeah. because at least they had figured out the shaky camera. Yeah, like, people make fun of, of course, you know, they take a hit, and everyone goes flying across the bridge, but, like... That's what would happen. That's what would happen. Like, you, if you not... If you have a big hit... You know, people always joke about seatbelts on the Enterprise, but, like, you're not supposed to have to have to do that in, in ordinary circumstances, so when they take a big hit from a torpedo, everyone does go flying across the screen, and it sells you on the impact of... That torpedo, it goes back to our yeah. conversation we had about Surf's Up, where as long as the characters in the narrative treat it as very serious, that as these real. are as yeah. real, that these are consequences that are happening, it, it, you it will come us. along with yeah. them on right. the ride. Right. Now, a big problem I had with this, I love things that have a thesis, that have thematic cohesion. Yeah. I do like films that introduce notes of ambiguity, but that's all they should really be is notes. I want to come away from every film thinking that it wanted to say something and the something it wanted to say we can disagree on. Right. But it, everyone should come away from a film, ideally a good, good film, and say it had something to say. And that's, that thesis is what I remembered about this movie over the last 20 years and why I wanted to show it to you. I had that thesis in my head. That's why I thought it was worth watching in this current political climate. And yet... Spoilers for a movie that came out in 56. <laughs> so... 
they do determine that Queeg is was mentally unfit to be captain. They're cleared of all charges. The mutineers are not going to be hanged. They have a little party afterwards. They're actually having a party. Hey, hey we didn't get hanged. Everyone, let's uh, have a toast to <laughs> not being hanged. Let's do that. Yeah. And their lawyer, who has been defending them, kind of crappily, I might add. Like yeah. I haven't seen too many courtroom dramas, but he hasn't seemed too interested in anything that's happening. Yeah. He comes in, and he's basically like, yeah, you guys won the case, but you know, you guys lost the argument. Like... Like, you're all terrible people. You're all terrible people for betraying Queeg, and you don't get to decide if you like an officer or not, and you guys are just bitter because he wouldn't let you guys have your shirts untucked. And that is the final note of the film. Yeah, he completely undoes all the hard work that's been done in the movie to ask the question of when do you disobey authority. Yeah, because he says, says, no, you never disobey authority. Yeah, you should should obey this guy even though he's crazy and you guys are all small people. It's terrible. And 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 what's worse is that the main characters don't even like disagree with him. They all stand around really ashamed, and then they all yeah. file out one by one. Yeah, like they we're just all stand it and we're take all it. very sad. We shouldn't have had this party. Like yeah. <laughs> like, so so what happens is it uh, it undermines the whole movie, and you're left with no lesson. There's no thesis. It's yeah. all a watch. because it's not a note of ambiguity. It's like oh man, I sure hope you weren't invested in that two hours that you just watched this film because. <laughs> We gonna burn that sucker to the ground, like. And actually, that's another reason why I would show somebody uh, *Crimson Tide* because after that court martial scene, you know, where this is all hashed out, you actually do see Gene Hackman and Denzel and and some other guy. I forget exactly how it's staged, but you do see them after, and there there is kind of that same back and forth, but it's done better in a way that you're left to decide, right? Like. This feels cheap in the Kane Mutiny because you never see Humphrey again, mm-hmm. right? Like, the people who disobeyed him and took over the ship and saved the ship and then were put on trial for doing that, you know, they don't have to confront Humphrey after they're left off. They have to confront the lawyer, right? So yeah. there, there's a disconnect. There's there's a false note there. Yeah. Whereas Denzel and Hackman have to, there's yeah. more of a, a coming to terms in Crimson Tide. Yet another theme, better tackled in Reign of Fire. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. You get five minutes to talk about that. No, no, I'm just joking, dude. I'm I'm not going to spend five minutes on the Kane Mutiny podcast talking about how much I love Reign of Fire. Because that will be its own podcast. If I have to drag this podcast across the line myself to do a Reign of Fire, I will. But no, Kane Mutiny, we'll stay here. (laughs) Also, like a bizarre detail, like the 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 for some reason the hand of their lawyer is like injured the whole time. Well, it's because he was injured. The actor Jose Ferrer actually. Man, had an I didn't injury. even read that in the trivia. I was yeah, just yeah. like, oh, he just they aren't gonna they aren't well, gonna talk. Well, it's wartime, dude. Come on. I guess I guess he got shot through the hand by a legal clerk or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's all. I mean, it all just feels like I to defend myself and when I make fun of the special effects in this film. There are plenty of times where the special effects hold up perfectly well. I mean, they have an old minesweeper where they do lovely, big, sweeping shots of this minesweeper. They get them on an aircraft carrier, an honest-to-God aircraft carrier. That's correct. Uh, There's a great scene where they are doing a beach landing, and they're being shelled. Well, they show some actual World War II footage. Yeah, archival footage, but it's edited together really seamlessly. There's not a big tonal disconnect. And then they just put the thing in the bathtub, and they like, fl- or they flush the <laughs> toilet, or whatever. And it's just, 
It looks terrible. It looks awful. And it takes me out of the film. I know this is nitpicky, but, but all of these little details, the stuff that we love, the minutia, it isn't there. Their attention yeah. to detail isn't there. Like, when they're doing the scene with the strawberries, to be more... Again, this is just another example of how they're not weaving it all together. And he's doing this big test of, like, you know, oh, look, the scoops of sand don't equal the scoops of strawberries. Correct. Nobody, and I understand they're all a little cowed by him. It's also really early in the morning. That scene happens, like, at 1 a.m. or something. He calls them in. Somebody should just say, like, sir, respectfully, there would be air between the strawberries and you yeah, could yeah. then spin that into him being like don't you disagree with me don't you like, yeah, yeah, yeah. but that's a potential that's not them pointing out a plot hole and you don't want them to say that because it will take you out of it that's an opportunity for further narrative discourse but since you haven't addressed it instead we the audience are left kind of like holding our hands going but oh, Captain Quig Captain Quig <laughs> I might have an answer Captain Quig ooh, ooh pick me pick yeah. me yeah. Humphrey pick me yeah um so it's a disappointment to me because I love Humphrey Bogart. There's still a bunch of his movies in the canon that it's I will show. great name for a film. The Kane Mutiny. It, it is a great, and uh, I appreciate what they were trying to do. I just keep thinking of other better examples. I, I tell you what, including Lord of the Flies. You know, you want to talk about people and how do they decide who's in charge and how do you resist. I so Lord of the have the conch. Exactly. So Lord of the Flies has, is still being taught in middle schools today. Because it holds up yep. and is a part of the canon, and now we're going to get an all-female reboot movie. So that's going to be interesting that's to me. Gas. But you know what? The Kane Mutiny is wastes talent. The the script doesn't hold together, and then it completely bails on the question that it puts in front of people, which is when do you, in a democratic society, disobey the authority that is mm-hmm. legitimately put above you? Yeah, it even fails to make this young heartthrob guy a real heartthrob because the whole time he's just kowtowing to his mother like the whole yeah, time like yeah. his he doesn't learn anything he doesn't learn he's anything. not the guy put on court-martial it's van johnson no he's right just... and there's no bond between the young heartthrob and van johnson the young heartthrob could be completely cut out of this movie and you could make the mutiny be fred mcmurray right who's the mm. i'm smarter than now kind of hipster character. yeah yeah we haven't talked about fred at all it's a very interesting role. Uh, I actually think his role holds up pretty well in the movie. Um, and, you know, he's the guy at the party at the end of the movie after they've been let off the hook. You know, he totally uh, becomes a coward under pressure. In he lies t- under oath. And he lies under oath. Uh, and then he gets the champagne thrown in his face by the lawyer. Uh, that I think actually holds up. He is a very complicated, reprehensible character because you know what? He decides, he's the one who sort of instigates the questions about authority, but when push comes to shove, he does not resist. He completely bails on the moral imperative to resist unjust authority. Yeah. He's a really harsh criticism of writers, which was hard not to take personally. (laughs) He's really like, oh, you guys will write about this stuff, but you've never had the balls to say anything. And I'm just like... I mean, okay, man, you kind of came from my life on that one, like. Yeah. Well. But like, it, it's it's, and it is good. I, I do like his character arc because you're really set up to really like him. I mean, his wit is just spot on. The early yes. stuff. Yeah, the early stuff. You you like him. He's a lot of fun when he shows up on screen. You're like, oh man, I know I'm gonna get a couple good zingers out of him. And right. by the end, you're like, wow, what an absolute abject loser. Right. Who so, can't stand up for what's right. 
when he had pointed it out. So here's how to fix the movie. When the lawyer throws the champagne in his face at the end and calls him on it, you have Van Johnson or the young guy, right, the young everyman officer, answer back. Somebody needs to answer the lawyer back and say, we did what was right, we know what was right, we saved lives... Right? By resisting authority, we saved the ship and saved lives. Right? Somebody's got to answer that. And instead, they let the rest of those guys get dragged down with the Fred McMurray character. Yeah. I mean, the right? other guys, you know, the other guys have acted honorably and only when it came down to life or death life did or they death. make that choice. And they knew they didn't make that choice. Never in the movie, I, I do like this, never in the movie do they go like, Oh, I didn't know what would happen. Like, I don't know we're going to get put on trial. They know what the consequences oh, yeah. are of this they very seriously. And I think that really is actually one of the details of the film that really speaks to it very well. That they don't, you know, they are talking about, you know, we're going to court-martial you and hang you if you do this. And they know yeah. the consequences. Yeah. And that's what does make their choice narratively work and hang together. Is that they are choosing... Yeah. The Until chance... it's completely undone yeah. at the end of the movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they're choosing the chance of a later death Versus the chance of, yeah, the chance of a death now. Right. It's all about risk. Uh, if you boil the movie down to the parts that work, the parts that work are where it's about risk assessment. And it's also, this is very important to say, this is again why I like military movies, because there is a clear hierarchy, right, in a way that the rest of our society is not explicitly organized. But you know what? Those officers on the bridge in the middle of the typhoon, they're in charge of all the lives on the ship. Mm-hmm. So when they resist the top authority, they're speaking for guys down in the hold, down in the engine room, back, you know, uh, close to the guns. You know, the rest of the guys on the ship do not get to be involved in this choice because they're busy making the ship work and trying to survive, you know, by carrying out their tasks. Yeah, in the some, of the <laughs> some, some of them are drowning. Some of them are being washed overboard and drowning, which, again, doesn't come up. That we see that happen in the we typhoon. We see them drowning and dying, and like and nobody brings the... that up. The defense lawyer. You guys really should have respected Captain Quig's rule of law, especially when those dudes were getting flung thirty feet into the air. Like... Yeah. So <laughs> that's ridiculous that that doesn't come up in the court martial. But you know, so that's a really interesting question in our republic, right? Small R, our democratic representative government, is if you are like in the White House but you're not the president, or if you're in government but you're not the top dog. When do you resist on behalf of everybody else? Right? I mean, because like I'm sitting in a TV room in upstate New York. I don't really get to resist right now. You know, there's not much, I don't have much power, but I'm counting on some people who are higher up the chain than me to love this country and think about these questions. Mm-hmm. Right? We, we have a system where some of this is possible. It's built into the Constitution the way it's built into the Navy book, right? They literally, in this movie, pull out the Navy regulations, and it says, well, in this case and in this case, you can take over the ship, but you, as the officers, better damn for sure know what you're doing. Yep. They have a huge moral responsibility. That's what this movie should be about. That's what this movie completely bails on in the last 20 minutes. And instead, it's about this young guy... Hanging out with his hot lounge singer girlfriend in Yosemite. <laughs> and talking, ever... talking about his mother. Uh, <laughs> about his mother. Oh my Do you Lord. have enough money? Are you, are you doing well enough? I don't want you to take any unnecessary risks. And it's just like, uh. I understand that he doesn't have any arc. Like at the end of the film, that the only arc has... is that he gets out of the cab with both his girlfriend and his mom. Like, Ew! Oh, oh no! That's so 
gross. <laughs> gross. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that guy who's supposed to, you know, represent the viewer, the, he's the everyman character, he does not, he doesn't figure anything out. Oh my god, there's nothing to him. Like, oh. I'd call him a viewpoint character, but he's kind of too dull for that. He's so dull. Oh, look, we vomited up on the top mast. <laughs> Wacky hijinks. Yeah. God, it's It's so a stupid. terrible movie. Oh, All right, so the Kane Mutiny is out of the canon. The Kane but- Mutiny is out of the can. This is actually one of the rare podcasts where we have reviewed something, we appraised it, and we're telling you guys, I mean, if you want to watch it, sure, go ahead, but this is not something to be passed on, not don't, in our don't, opinion. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You're good. You're clear. Watch Crimson Tide. Crimson Tide's pretty good. I don't know that we'll get to a podcast of that. Uh, we'll certainly... Try to do a podcast about the African queens. Is, lo- is is Gene Hackman the Humphrey Bogart of his generation? Ooh. Can't handle. Can't handle. Can't fit that oh! in this podcast. We've got to talk about that another time. My name is Bentley. I'm Samuel. And that's the Review Podcast. podcast.